This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias. Keith and Genevieve have both taken their mentalist act on the road, but something tells me they'll be back before long, given that the mentalist trade isn't what it used to be. Filling in both of our empty chairs this week is old friend and co-worker Noel Murray, a longtime freelance writer and critic whose work can be found pretty much everywhere you've ever found us and a thousand more places on top of that. Noel, it is great to see you as always. It is great to be here. Good to see you guys. Noel, Scott and I are working on a mentalist act ourselves. Uh, we feel a little jealous about uh, Keith and Genevieve having all the fun. I want you to test it out. If you could just grab that piece of paper there and write a message on it, just any message, make sure that neither one of us can see it and then fold it over so none of the writing is visible and just hand it to me. Okay, here you go. Uh, okay, Scott, I am carrying in my palm a <laughs> chunk of paper inked upon with words can you relate to me what message it buries well it says that noel doesn't want to be part of a labored comedy bit at the top of the show <laughs> whoa that is exactly right i have no idea how you got that the codes we worked out for this feel really labored and unnatural i i didn't get it from the codes i, ju I just know noel really well we've been friends for what like 25 years or so no 30 years <laughs> pretty much pretty much uh, so it was it was easy to figure out that uh, uh what he'd have to say about this whole uh, business okay fine i guess if we ever want to make it big in the world of fake psychics we're gonna have to come up with a routine where you read noel's mind uh in the meantime noel if you don't want to do any of the silly stuff uh do you want to just read what we're talking about this week sure we're talking about uh, nightmare alley which started out as a 1946 novel by william lindsey gresham 
and was adapted as a celebrated 1947 noir movie by Edmund Goulding, with Tyrone Power in the lead role. This year, director and producer Guillermo del Toro directed his own version of the story, which he emphasizes it isn't a remake of the 1947 version, but an attempt to more faithfully bring out what Gresham's book was trying to do. All three versions follow a carny and con artist named Stan, who learns the tricks of mentalism acts and becomes famous for them. When he tries to expand his hustle onto spiritualism to take advantage of a rich man mourning his lost love, he opens himself up to disaster. We'll be looking back to the 1947 version of the film this week and into the way it softens the story. Then next week, we'll visit Guillermo del Toro's version of the world, his first foray into non-fantasy filmmaking, but not his first into the themes that haunt Nightmare Alley. Stay tuned. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind oh, of a... Oh. It takes one to catch one. Listen to me. I'm no good. I never pretended to be. But I love you. I'm a hustler. I've always been one. But I love you. I may be the thief of the world, but with you, I've always been on the level. At one point in Jason Reitman's darker-than-dark 2011 comedy Young Adult, the selfish, toxic, hard-drinking protagonist Mavis, played by Charlize Theron, has the briefest moment of self-awareness. I think I might be an alcoholic, she tells her parents, dropping her defenses for just a moment. Her mother laughs, and her father doesn't even take a breath before he changes the subject. That moment is immediately lost, but it hangs there for the audience, just the awareness that Mavis is both capable of seeing herself and not capable of holding onto a moment of self-reflection long enough to take action about it. Stan Carlyle, the huckster protagonist of Edmund Golding's Nightmare Alley, has a similar moment early in the film, while he's trying to badger and cajole a woman into giving him something he thinks he deserves because he could make a profit with it. You know, I wonder why I'm like that. Never thinking about anybody but myself, he asks. And then he moves on, having revealed himself to both us as the audience and to his victim. It doesn't sink in properly for her, but it does for us through every beat that follows. It's necessary to know that Stan only cares about himself, because as played by star of the day Tyrone Power, Stan can be both charming and elegant. He can seem to be caring, attentive, and devoted, at least until he gets whatever he's gunning for at any given moment. He's the perfect huckster, a completely amoral striver who grew up on poverty, abuse, and neglect, and as a result, he doesn't really see other people as people. They're barriers or they're boosters, and that's all that matters. If you dig a little into the backstory of author William Lindsay Gresham, who wrote the novel both Nightmare Alley films are based on, it's pretty easy to see where Stan came from. Gresham had a long, long run of different careers in his life, from folk singer to stage musician to copywriter and editor. He was a typewriter salesman. He was a biographer. He was a researcher, a volunteer soldier, a freelance reporter. He worked in a laundry. He had various jobs as a clerk or as a secretary. And yes, he worked in a circus doing various carny jobs, from knife thrower to mentalist. He engaged that same restlessness when he was trying to treat the mental illness that reportedly plagued him throughout his whole life, moving from a keen interest in psychiatry to obsessions with the occult, spiritualism, Christianity, Buddhism, Dianetics, and various forms of mysticism. All of those interests and experiences seem to have merged in Stan, a man looking for any hustle that will bring him the fame and fortune he feels he deserves. 
When Stan falls in with a small carnival and starts working with a mind-reading act run by deteriorating alcoholic Pete and his partner Zena, Stan finally hits pay dirt. Pete and Zena used to have a mind-reading act built around an elaborate series of codes they'd used to pass each other's secret information. When Stan gets his hands on the codes, he runs off with young, impressionable carny Molly, and they start their own highly successful mentalist act. But that isn't enough for Stan, who sees the possibility of more money in a spook show, a spiritualism racket where he pretends to summon and speak to the dearly departed. Molly balks, so Stan finds a partner in sharp-edged psychiatrist Lilith, who feeds him the information he needs to dig himself in deeper and deeper. Nightmare Alley is a classic tale of noir hubris, complete with a femme fatale and a dumb patsy setup for a fall. But there's no gumshoe mystery to unravel here. There's no greedy tycoon or criminal mastermind hidden in the shadows, sending out thugs to make Stan's life miserable. He can make himself miserable all on his own. He is his own worst enemy, and he lets us know it early on, so we can see through every subsequent scheme and promise to the hunger at his core. It's a pretty vicious story, and it was kind of in a sensation when it was published in 1946. Tyrone Power was an instant fan of the book, and he personally petitioned 20th Century Fox's Daryl F. Zanuck to buy the film rights to the book for $60,000 so Power could play the lead. The movie version that followed a year later did poorly in theaters, but it was celebrated by critics and widely heralded for its daring and its darkness. Even those jaded critics of the time seem to have been pretty shocked at the brutality of its story, and they described in very lurid language the bleakness and depth of its depravities. It's ironic today, given how much darker the 2021 version gets and how many fewer punches it pulls. But at the same time, how do you get darker than a man who knows he's selfish and willing to use and abuse everyone around him, but is incapable of even trying to fix the problem? Some ugly, tragic things happened in the 1947 Nightmare Alley, but none of them are more horrifying than that moment of clarity and the ease with which it passes and is lost. Chord from the orchestra, Amber Spot, and I'm on. Make me spiel, good for one laugh, plenty of mystery. <laughs> Go right into my reading. Here's my crystal. <clears throat> Throughout the ages, man has sought to look behind the veil that hides him from tomorrow. And through the ages, certain men have looked into the polished crystal and seen. Is it some quality of the crystal itself? Or does the gazer merely use it to turn his gaze inward? All right, gang. Uh, what's your history with uh, the 1947 version of Nightmare Alley? Uh, had you had you seen this before? Have either of you read the book? Um, I have not read the book. Um, I have seen the film a couple of times. It's one that pops up frequently on TCM. Um, it's a classic for uh, the Noir Alley series they do. Um, so I, you know, pretty much every time it comes around again on Noir Alley, I try to watch it because it is uh, a classic for a reason. Yeah, I had a not seen it at all and probably would not have seen it were it not for the Del Toro movie. So I'm extremely grateful for him for that at a minimum because I, I, I saw it and I really liked it. I, I don't, it's uh, really not like any noir I, I've seen. I mean, the fact that just the setting, the world that it gets into is so unique. And uh, there are a lot of just interesting twists and turns. Uh, you know, a lead character, I think, is, you know, defined by, you know, as you said in your keynote hubris for sure and kind of an amorality i guess things that you do associate with noir but but there's also guilt there there's other a lot of other feelings in the mix and some pretty richly defined characters in in, in atmosphere here I, I i thought it was i was really impressed by it what, what about you tasha 
I'm in the same boat. I had never heard of this movie before the Del Toro version came along. Coming out of it, I actually stopped to talk with a um, friend of the podcast, longtime film spotting top 10 end of the year companion, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune, about the original. And uh, he, he said he's been a huge fan for a really long time, but that he traditionally just had a really, really hard time seeing it, that it would pop up very occasionally in like regional noir films or uh, at a repertory theater. But until fairly recently, when the Criterion Channel picked it up, it was just very hard to find, which explains why, you know, none, none of us had seen it. It's got a very strong reputation as a classic, but I personally had not heard of it or the novel. And I'm in the same boat as you. I, I might not have heard of it if not for, for Del Toro. And I'm very glad I did. This is, it's just such a unique noir film. You know, it, it has sort of pieces of the formula that we're uh, familiar with. And then so much of the rest of it is just replaced by what feels like a completely unique setting drawn by somebody who knows it really well because he he lived it. And as you say, like these really strongly drawn characters. I'm, I'm going to chastise you both real quick because I, I know you're both like more in the streaming world these days. For goodness sake, if you subscribe to cable... You get TCM. <laughs> and TCM shows noir all the time. Noir Alley every Saturday night, Sunday morning uh, uh, with Eddie Muller. I'm telling you guys, it's 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 worth it's worth the investment. Noel is always shaming the cord cutters. I yeah, <laughs> I I ditched cable in the early 1990s and have not looked back since. I do have Hulu Live, so I, I should be able to. Uh, so the shame is real for me. I should uh, I I don't have an excuse, but. This is, this is an audio medium, but I'm giving you both a thumbs down. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, but I think in terms of this film, I should imagine the fact that the director doesn't necessarily have a big rep. You know, I just think there's a lot of forces that kind of, you know, for a lot of these films that kind of survive, you, you want somebody, a, a director or even an, an actor who has a, a long history in the genre or something. I just think, think this one kind of doesn't fall into that you know, category, but I suspect there's lots like it that are, you know, lots of, lots of gems out there that aren't really associated with, uh, that aren't directed by Jacques Tenor or people, right. anybody like that, because this is very confident. I mean, the, you know, it, as a piece of direction, Edmund Golding, what did he, what did he do before? Anything significant? He did a number of, uh, fairly significant titles, which, um, I've seen very few of. I've never oh, seen Dark, Dark Victory. I've never seen Dark Victory. Right. Um, okay. I have, gosh, I haven't seen Grand Hotel probably since college um, oh, well, this is this is uh this is i should not have uh spoken up about this he's, <laughs> he's, got, he's got his he's got actual cred uh, he does have actual cred but uh that cred i mean he's directed a lot of films that i just haven't heard of which does not mean that they're not solid classics uh the the 46 of human bondage um he he also did Noel, are you more familiar with uh his his biography given your, your addiction to cable that we all know so well? <laughs> uh, I am not. I mean, The Razor's Edge, of course, is uh, is uh, well-known, uh, but not just because of the remake, but because of uh, uh, the original. Um, Dark Victory, of course, as you guys already mentioned. Yeah, no, he's not really... I mean, I mean, if you look at his filmography, noir is not necessarily his, his main focus. Uh, literary adaptations is kind of more what he was known for. And that's, I guess, what you would say this is. I mean, it is a noir, but it is not a conventional noir. I mean, it follows, it has some of the, you know, the basic tropes. It has your, your very, very fatal femme, <laughs> like the most mm -hmm. fatal femme you could possibly imagine. And of course, you know, it's got this sort of sense of guilt, this idea that uh, people who are, 
you know, uh, carry a stain with them that is unable to be washed off no matter what they tried to do to, to remove it. But the setting and the plot is, I think, a lot more literary than um, a lot of noirs from that era. And that's kind of what sets it apart. Yeah, it, it seems to me that one of the things that marks it as a noir, apart from the the cinematography and, and visual staging, which does, at least once it moves away from the carnival and into interiors, it starts to feel a lot more like a conventional noir. But more than anything, it's just the cynicism, you know, the the, the feeling of world weariness and awareness of uh, the darkness of human nature and the inescapability of of your own fate like that aspect of it it feels very noir but yeah other than that i i feel like if you gave this to somebody as their first noir they would come away very confused about what people were talking about with uh, all of all of these noir tropes <laughs> that they just didn't see any of here yeah and i and i think it, it, you were talking about a sort of literary nature it, it just feels highly highly detailed in a way that noir doesn't necessarily need to be i mean it, it, when we think of noir films we think of them as being stripped down usually shorter than uh this is uh <laughs> though when we get the del toro it gets even longer uh, at 100 almost 150 minutes this is this is 111 and i think a lot of that is just is just feels a little more layered it feels like it's more invested in you know evoking the world of of the carny of, of carnivals i think all that all that stuff is just so credible i guess and well thought through and and uh and, 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 all, and even just you know once stan and molly hit the mentalist circuit and and you get to that area of the plot and you get to all the stuff about spiritualism and psychiatry and all the, all of these elements kind of mixed together it's a pretty dense you know brew here yeah, I would add on top of all of that, the fact that Molly and Stan at one point very clearly sleep together um, at a at an emotional moment. And then immediately the people around them kind of see it on their faces and in their behavior and literally force them to marry. <laughs> not even at, not even <laughs> yeah. at gunpoint, at, uh, at, at strong arm point, at, you know, beefy bicep wrapped around your throat point. Neither of them appear to want it. But it's just immediately assumed that, you know, because they have had sex, it is necessary to instantly marry them, no matter what it does to either of them and and their futures. And that is something that, you know, you you grow up with jokes about shotgun weddings, and it's the kind of thing that you might encounter in a novel of a certain period. But it's not something I feel like I've ever seen on film. Very freaks, right, Scott? Well, uh, it, yes, the film. Yeah. You mean like a kind of culture, I guess? Yeah, just you know, just uh, um, uh, the idea that if you you know, um, you've you've transgressed beyond the rules of this society, this little little carny, subculture. At, yeah, the carny the carny code. code. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you have to you have to pay the price. <laughs> yeah, no, the carny code, and of course it becomes though a catalyst for Stan, and becomes a, a moment of uh, it's Christatunity if we're going to keep going with Simpsons references, um, <laughs> uh, where where it's like, oh, okay, so we're kind of uh, exiled from this situation. But now we can take that next step. We can do something even bigger with what we have. And uh, that kind of propels the story forward. And I just think you get really this is a, this is a film with with pretty rich uh, female characters, really. I mean, it, you know, Xena, Molly and Lilith are all very interesting, very differently drawn. Um, uh, you know, Stan's relationship with, with all three of them complex in different ways i just i think there's a there's a there does feel like a, a writerly novelly depth to this movie that is supported by genuine noir atmosphere yeah i mean it has a very unusual structure um in that it spends like the first you know 40 minutes or whatever in the carnival 
and then moves into the more upscale theatrical world where he's doing the mentalism act. And then he has the whole situation with with you know uh, the psychiatrist and you know so it has goes through different phases that you don't usually see in a film like this, which again is more literary. It's more kind of a series of you know adventures that he is having. Uh, what what kind of marks it as noir, like I said before, is Stan himself um, and the idea that he is just a broken person and that you know all these things he goes through are not going to make a difference. That ultimately you know. Um, he bears the mark of Cain. <laughs> you know, he's 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 a he's a he's a broken person, and that's just the way he's going to be. I think if I have a quibble with the film, it's the way that it's structured, kind of going from adventure to adventure, never really gives it for me a clear sense of stakes. There's a feeling, and and this goes for the the 2021 version as well. There's so much of it where. I don't really have an idea of what the next step is and not in an anticipatory, wow, this is exciting, but I don't know where this film is going kind of way. But literally, I just don't see like what the arc is, what what the stakes are for him in many of the moments. Maybe one of the reasons the forced wedding is so like evocative and immediate is because it kind of comes after a, a series of events where you're not really sure who Stan is or what he wants or what it means when he gets something or doesn't get something he wants. I don't really think he fully comes into focus until he and Molly run away together. And before that, it's a series of incidents, some of which are really, really interesting. You know, the obviously the confronting the sheriff and talking oh, him yeah. down Holy is just, moly. it's a mesmerizing and charismatic and interesting scene. But at the same time, you just really, until you get halfway through the film, you don't start to see what kind of pattern is being built, how all of these pieces fit together. I, yes, I guess. But, okay, go ahead, Noel. No, I was going to say yes, but that's kind of what I love <laughs> yeah. about it. I mean, I, I kind of like not knowing, you know, I, I like these movies where it's like, oh, okay, I guess now we're going to be uh, traveling in uh, big theaters. You know, it's, it's just not being able to predict where he is going to end up. Um, is part of what the appeal uh, is to me. And, and I, I do think that there is sort of a, I guess the continuity for me is just him uh, trying to look for the next angle that he can play. So, you know, almost as soon as he arrives in the carnival and hears about the mentalist act, he's like angling to try to find a way to learn it because he, he wants to get out. He wants to be able to use it. He wants to make money. So to me, it's all about what can he do to play his advantage and make money. And he's going to keep on pushing that advantage, even when he has been warned repeatedly, this is not going to end well for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say the way I would think about this movie is just almost like a slow motion car wreck yeah. or a fast motion mm -hmm. car wreck, really, just because, you know, it's just an escalation, really, of events of Stan following his ambition and then continuing to increase it, continuing to make riskier and riskier choices and getting to the point where we know he's going to crash flame out. There's just no chance. There's nothing sustainable about what he's trying to do. It's like a high wire act and it gets crazier and crazier. I mean, he's got, I mean, it gets to a point where he is, uh, you know, commissioning Molly to be a ghost. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like things are, this is far from making a cozy living, you know, bilking, you know, the rich people, a lot of money on, on stage, which he could just continue to do forever. I don't think there's anything stopping him from doing that, but he has that instinct to just keep going. And so there's the tension of the film, you know, it is knowing that there's going to be a point where he's going to hit the wall. And, and he, when he hits the wall, it's a pretty spectacular crash. The other thing too, about this movie and about Stan that I find interesting is that, is that he does have a tremendous amount of 
ambition but there's there there are other elements to his character as well i mean there's kind of like a you know i think what ends up happening with pete becomes such a important um factor in the film in stan's psychology i mean it is it is his guilt over that incident i mean that that is not what a you know your a remorseless hubristic person would feel but it's it's so, so acute for him and so on the surface is so so important to the story and i think it kind of gives that character a little bit of a dimension to where you you, you kind of feel from a little bit yeah that's one thing that i kind of wanted to dig into a bit is just where your sympathies are with him i feel like there are a handful of moments here where he's meant to come across as kind of vile you know where he is kind of he wants something out of Molly and you see him kind of flipping through his deck, figuring out what's going to work. Like, is this going to be the one where I threaten her? Is this going to be the one where I beg her? Is this going to be the one where I play the, but I love you so much, honey card. Like you can just see him working through the keys on his key ring or working through the holy symbols around his neck. If you're thinking of the mummy, you know, just one of these has got to work and I will keep flipping through them till I find the answer. But I'm curious, I guess, his his backstory when it comes out, and it comes out kind of casually and without a speech about what it means to him and it, like his his character, like how it's changed him. But I think it's immediately obvious how it's changed him. You know, he describes this life of privation, of growing up in an orphanage, like having no family, having nobody who cared about him, running off, like being brought back, being sent to reform school, being like brutalized and abused and and never really belonging anywhere. And given that backstory, like no wonder he is perpetually hungry. No wonder he's obsessed with money and status. No wonder nothing is ever enough for him. But is that backstory enough for the the abuses that he reigns on people? Like, do you sympathize with him as a character? Do you want him to get what he wants? I mean, it, it's, it's the nature of these kind of films that you, whoever is at the center of the screen is the person that you're going to want to accomplish whatever goals they set out even if what they're trying to set out to do is terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way uh, uh, movies work, I think. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think that um, both films, and we'll get, I guess we'll get into the other one later on more, but the casting of both these films is very interesting. Tyrone Power and Bradley Cooper, you know, are both, um, you know, uh, incredibly handsome, charismatic actors, but who also are capable of playing darkness, you know, ha- having this sort of uh, troubled quality to them. I, sympathy is kind of a, a difficult word for me in this in this case, but certainly I can I can't stop watching him. I, I I do find what he's doing interesting, and I do find his history. You know, it explains things, but it certainly doesn't excuse things. And so he's he's somebody that is fascinating to watch. I'll put it that way. Well, part of that is just the casting of of Tyrone Power, as we brought up in the keynote. He wasn't satisfied with the kind of roles he was getting in Hollywood. He apparently read this book and decided that he really wanted to play this role, which was not the kind of role that he was accustomed to playing. And he went to Zanuck and asked him to buy the book and asked him to to give him this role. And reading some of the reviews at the time, people responded, like I, I touched on young adult uh, in the in the keynote, people responded the way they did when Charlie's Throne played Mavis in Young Adult, or when she played Eileen Warnos in in Monster, there was just sort of a feeling of, oh my gosh. And it kind of seemed like some of the responses to Tyrone Power in uh, the 1947 reviews were the same kind of thing. Like, there was a very distinct understanding of what Tyrone Power's career was, and that he had broken from it and, and proved himself. 
I did not have enough of a sense of him to have that kind of like feeling of history or feeling of this being like a breakthrough. Do either of you? I don't know how much I've seen of Tyrone Power. So I guess I probably wouldn't be, be able to say enough to point at a film like this and say, oh boy, that's uh, what a shifting of gears. Though though I think there there is pretty clearly a star power here that was that's kind of important to the story. I mean, I think you need someone who has big time charisma and who's able to kind of command the stage and assume the role that Stan does as quickly as he does. You know, I think once he gets into that, once he gets in, becomes a carny, he's really on a fast track to where he wants to be because he just has that kind of magnetism. And uh, that's, that's what a star can give you. Yeah, I mean, the advantage, I guess, of being a film buff, you know, looking back on things is that you can see the whole picture. So for me, I don't have a story for Tyrone Power, right? Like, I don't have a sense of, oh, Tyrone Power was this kind of actor, and then he did this, and it changed. For me, I can kind of see his entire career um, and, and, and get a larger sense. I guess if you, if you try to, like, put it into a context for us, is there anybody in the modern day you could think of who had a reputation a certain way? And then Tom Cruise, maybe? Like, Tom Cruise until he did... Born on the Fourth of July, where we or uh, Adam Sandler until he did uh, Punch Drunk Love, yeah, yeah some, something like that, I guess. So, so we still have that context, but I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm an old bastard, but I was not around when Tyrone Power <laughs> <laughs> was making Nightmare Alley. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, like I've seen the 1940 Mark of Zorro, but I don't remember his role, which is uh, which is Diego, and then uh, films like Daytime Wife or Suez or Second Honeymoon. Like I, I don't even recognize a lot of these titles. <laughs> so it's it's just kind of interesting to look back at on the on the the historical perspective of like visibly being able to see critics in their reviews, kind of like lighting up at the change that they were seeing represented by this performance. I, I just thought that was an interesting aspect of it that I wouldn't have had any any way to uh, access otherwise, if not for basically newspaper morgues online. And maybe it's maybe it's failure with audiences is, is I mean, that's an old, that's an old story, too, of just of audiences having an idea in their head about what a star is supposed to be. And that star having all kinds of trouble wriggling out from under that expectation. Uh, and so, and so when, and when they do, they, they don't do it to, you know, tremendous box office success. That is possibly true though. From everything I've read about it, the box office uh, issues possibly were just, you know, this is a fairly dark film with a not unremittingly bleak ending, but it's, it's certainly not a feel good movie that you come out tapping your toes to. And it's a little more expensive than a noir film. I mean, those, those things could get, you could make those not for not as much money and get a return that was modest and be fine. But, uh, but this, this seems like I think had a little bit more of an investment from the studio than, than usual. Yeah. They, they apparently had to build an, uh, an actual like carnival just to, to get, to get the, the kind of effective realism uh, that the director wanted. It looks awesome. <laughs> good, good for them. Pro- production value wise. This is, this is again, again, another surprise. Cause you know, you don't, you know, a lot of times film noir is all about kind of covering up, <laughs> You know, uh, with with single source lighting, your cheap uh, production design. And uh, this is sumptuous at times, though, again, not del Toro level sumptuous, but but (laughs) but but still something to look at. Yeah, a few things are uh, del Toro level uh, sumptuous, but yeah, it certainly feels a lot more expansive. And in some cases, at least during the the period of his his journey where he's a success and he's surrounded by rich people, 
just the scale and scope feels a lot more like almost like an MGM musical level of of costume and and set mm-hmm. uh, for the time that, that just does not feel uh, again like a horror movie. Uh, Scott, you brought up the three women mm-hmm. in this cast, the the women in his life, and I feel like the sort sort of the the small flaw with them is that the movie is just not interested in them outside of what they're doing with him much like he is not interested in them except when they're boosting him in some way the way the movie just drops xena like we we completely lose track of her once he moves on um the way molly only really kind of exists as uh, an adjunct to him the way in this version i really don't think i understand who lilith is or why she does what she does. I like these characters because they are, as you say, they're very distinctly drawn, especially for the time. They're very different from each other. They serve very different functions in the narrative. Uh, but at the same time, I, I end up very curious about, about aspects of them, particularly Helen Walker, I think, really brings across Lilith's. There's something kind of vicious in her where I think the performance has to do a lot of the work because I don't think the film really explains why she chooses to do what she does. Well, her name is Lilith. Yeah, <laughs> that does seem very telling. It's pretty loaded. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. They're, they're all people that Stan reacts to or people that, that represent, represent things for Stan, I would say. Um, so, no, they are not necessarily... They're very interesting. As Scott said earlier, they're very, they're three very interesting female characters. But as far as them being fully fleshed out as their own entities with their own motivations, I mean, Lilith clearly has her own motivations, but they're but but they're seen through the through the lens of how they you know both help and hurt Stan. But I think clearly she's sort of meant to be sort of a larger than life figure. She's a femme fatale, right? Um, and you know that that's that's the one thing that kind of really connects this movie to noir more than anything else. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, he is, he runs afoul of a woman who has her own plans and he thinks that they are simpatico and that they're, they're heading in the same direction. And instead it turns out that in fact, uh, you know, she has her own plans and she trips him up. Yeah. That is a plot machination more than it is a character, but it is still a very interesting character, you know, or interesting plot machination, <laughs> plot machination, I should say. Yeah, because he's he's found somebody uh, another swindler who kind of out, who he underestimates and out, out outdoes him. I mean, it is a classic femme fatale uh, character Lilith, but I mean, really interesting. I mean, interesting her you know the her you know recording these sessions and and her you know I mean she, you know he he finds somebody who is willing to go to this you know extreme place to pull off this incredible scam. Um, so that's interesting, and I, you know, I mean, as far as them not having more than what than how they relate to him, I mean, that's kind of what movies do. I mean, it's not really democratic; they're supporting players. <laughs> this is a movie about Stan, and and I think you know, each stop along the way, each person, each of these women have you know an impact on him, or or allow us to kind of like you know, it, it, they kind of deepen the movie in their own different ways. You know, and I, I like how Zena has this stature as just you know, somebody who's been around, you know, and been doing this for a long time and, and, and kind of, you know, has these, these, this loyalty to Pete that, that I think is quite touching. And, you know, and then you get, you get a really great scene where they come back, where the carnies kind of come back into this world that, 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 that Stan does not want them to enter. Uh, and so Zena gets to be a part of that as well. And, and, uh, and it's interesting to see that happen. And Molly is just, you know, she's kind of our, audience surrogate i mean she is somebody who is you know if we feel at all 
you know, any kind of moral revulsion at what Stan is doing. She is going to represent that uh, for us. Uh, and so she's identifiable in that, in that respect. And then of course, you know, Lilith is that classic femme fatale. Um, so I did, I did like that, how they all kind of factored into the, into the movie and, you know, shaped the whole narrative, I, I, you know, and I, I think all, all three of the, the actresses give pretty distinct performances. Yeah, it's the distinctiveness of them that that makes them really interesting to me. Xena in particular. Yeah. I just I feel like there's something kind of fascinating there in that she seems to fall into a romance with Stan and then she immediately recognizes when she's been upstaged by a younger and frankly like classically prettier girl. When she's alone with Stan, she just she looks like such a a handsome and vivacious woman where she she looks at Molly and she realizes that Molly has slept with a man that she thought she was having a romance with and her face just kind of twists. And she, in that moment, she looks considerably older and considerably plainer. And it's just a pretty fascinating, like bit of, it's a little in the performance. It's a little in the casting, you know, just the, the difference between somebody who, like stands out as a beautiful woman and somebody who you would put on a magazine cover because they're a startling and, and exceptional and they, they look fine on their own, but you put them next to each other and there's that distinctive moment and the staging of it. I, I just think it, it's a, one of the, one of the really striking moments in the movie. Yeah. And Molly is kind of the type of person who could go for somebody like Stan. I mean, the, you, you, somebody who, you know, cause she's so, she's naive. Stan has got, all of this charisma and uh, ambition and seems like he's got it going places and, and uh, it, it kind of, she kind of makes sense, you know, for that juncture of the, of the film. And, and, um, and I, you know, and you feel really connected with her, you know, as she's kind of br- dragged along and as she's becomes increasingly disillusioned by uh, his behavior. And then, and then, you know, in that final act where she's really having to, when she's having to pretend like she's, you know, <laughs> a ghost, <laughs> it just, you know, it crushes her. And I think that she really, you know, nails that scene. Um, Scott, you were talking earlier about how Stan thought he had found somebody who was kind of in the same boat as him in with Xena, somebody that he could like, Share. I'm sorry, not Zena, with Lilith. Right. That's that Stan and Lilith had something in common that they could carry forward. And Tasha, I think that kind of also when you talk about that, that you know, Zena's face falling when she sees Stan looking at Molly. That's kind of the same thing in a way. It's it's. it's I think Zena thought that she found somebody in Stan. They were simpatico in some way. That they kind of had. They were headed in the same direction. They kind of both knew what they were doing. And so to find out that he was not interested in staying with her, there's a parallel there. I think between what happens to her with you know stan and what happens to him with lilith so i have not read the book i've read a bunch about the book i've read some very very rapturous descriptions of the prose in the book but as near as i could tell the ending of this version of the movie is is pretty tacked on in a studio kind of way both the the moment of hope for uh for stan at the end and then there's just kind of a, a little tag on the end that's like hey i'm just curious what's what's the moral of the story the moral is never try. That's that's how it comes across <laughs> to me. It's just like, you know, it's it's his fault for overreaching, man. Like you 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 try to fly too high, you're gonna your wings are gonna melt. And then you know the carnies saying that just kind of walk away. I mean, do you buy this as a, a morality tale about overreaching? No, no. I mean, I don't. I don't. I just think. I think. I mean, we'll talk about the Del Toro later, but this is definitely one. 
where you got to tick the box in, in Del Toro's favor. I don't think the ending of of this of the forty seven version is all that strong, and it feels it feels does feel compromised. It feels like okay, we've got to land this in a way that's going to be palatable for audiences rather than as true as we as true as possible to this character in the story. That part of the film fell flat. Um, rest of it's really great though. As somebody who is well known in my family uh, for uh, subscribing to the belief that you should never try. Um, <laughs> I, I, it resonated with me, okay. I, I find. Uh, no, no, really. No, seriously. Um, I, I will say this. I think that, um, and we'll get more into this with the next chapter of this. This movie is a lot closer to, and I haven't read the book either, but from what I understand about the source material, it's a lot closer to the source material than you might have expected for 1947. When they when people were very freely adapting, mm-hmm. you know, books and plays, you know, to, to make them whatever they felt audiences wanted. I mean, you, you, uh, they made this, they basically tried to capture what was interesting about the book and what that was kind of ugly and to some extent, I guess, unpalatable given the box office failure of the film. But they were willing to do that. They were willing to kind of really push it as far as they possibly could. And there are a few, you know, from what I've read, a few plot elements that deviates. You know, there's, there's some, some sections they don't quite get to in the movie that they got, that they, they do in the, in the book. Um, but the overall arc of it is pretty much the same. Um, and the overall, you know, the, 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 the multiple part structure, like I talked about before, you know, that's mostly in the book and they carried it through to the movie, which is, you know, really admirable for 1947. Uh, any last like bits that particularly stand out to you? Anything that you want to particularly call out? Carney talk. <laughs> I love Carney talk. I love any kind of movie actually that gets you like deep inside a subculture um, and takes you into the ins and outs of it. And there's more of that in the next film, and we'll talk about it more then. Um, but certainly, you know, all the details about what life in a carnival is like, um, and then extending that to how do you do the mentalist act, you know, how do you read people, all that kind of stuff. Man, I could eat that up with a spoon all day long. I love it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I think I, I just seeing how the mentalist trick worked, getting that magic act kind of explained for us, you know, first through these these little <laughs> panels underneath the you know that were that pete was drawing up underneath the stage and then and then just in the the, the language and the way the, the code the way that works i mean those sequences are, are gold for sure amazing to watch from everything that i've read it really sounds like this book like like gresham was the one who brought the idea of a a sideshow geek like into the popular lexicon people at carnivals uh who hid in pits and, and bit the heads off chickens and were presented as uh cautionary scientific tales by uh, carnivals that were trying to prove their you know scientific and educational importance in order to get around uh, local local freak show laws basically it was it was understood in the Carney world that these were called geeks, but that was not a term that had had reached the wider world at all until this book, which I, I just kind of find fascinating. It's like discovering the words that uh, Lewis Carroll or Shakespeare invented that, that didn't exist before their plays <laughs> came along. So mm-hmm. that fascinates me. But I, honestly, one of the other like small things about this movie that just really struck me is how much time the camera spends on the faces of the the slack-jawed lo- yokels at the carnival who are being gulled by Xena's show and 
how much time we spend on the the glitterati, the the rich people in their rich costumes are being equally gulled by a, a fancier, <laughs> slicker version of the show. And honestly, how little difference there is between them. That mm-hmm. that feels <laughs> yeah, a little point. bit subversive to me for 47. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, no matter uh, what level of uh, income you uh, have, uh, you can, you're dupes, dupes. It's a, it's a whole era of dupes. <laughs> well, that takes us right back to the the cynicism of noir, which is something we're going to see a whole lot more of uh, when we look at the uh, the 2021 version of this story, which gets even darker and even more cynical and is even rougher on the characters. Uh, but we'll we'll handle that next week. In the meantime, we're going to take a break and then we'll get to feedback. time for feedback where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film scott could you read this first letter about your power of the dog and deliverance pairing sure uh atasha we missed you on that one it was exciting we went down river Ugh, that sounds like a good thing to miss and then also to montana uh which was new zealand <laughs> conspicuously new zealand okay so uh james writes i'm a big fan of the podcast oh thanks james and and the power of the dog episode really helped me process the details of the film Uh, i forget who made the hitchcock connection it might have been me i think uh but (laughs) but that made me think of the similarities between peter and norman bates both are wispy fragile seeming men uh that were murderous and calculating while having a devotion to their mothers uh norman had his taxidermy and peter his trapping and dissection of animals uh, while that is most likely a coincidence, I thought I would share. Thanks again for the podcast and looking forward to seeing movies in the theater soon. That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't think hey, coincidence. I don't know. I mean, like I, I didn't even think about the taxidermy part of this and, you know, and the mother thing and the like, those are three things, right? Three things about one of the most famous movies ever, you know, and we, and we have properly talked about power of the dog as being Hitchcockian. So uh, to me, James is onto something. What do you guys think? I mean, I'm not going to entirely write it off as uh, as coincidence per se, but the idea of a uh, a man who is not like physically presupposing, who is not uh, like classically muscular and and macho, being devoted to his mother and possibly seeking power over like smaller, weaker things. Like all of those things seem very much uh, like of a, a particular type of characterization that, that mm. goes together. Like I, I think it is possible for those things to to all rhyme perfectly because they're trying to tap into like a certain idea of like like inward turning or curdled masculinity as opposed to being like a direct reference. But I still think it's a really good comparison. I, th- I think it's a really good observation. So do, you, do you need? Kirsten Dunst to be like a, a skeleton, Tasha, for this to work for you. <laughs> I, that's that, I always need that. I just I feel like in every movie uh, she should she should be played by a skeleton. I I don't even know what I'm saying. She's done some terrific work. <laughs> it's a good thought, and I think uh, to me it was just kind of like this, you know, what the Cody Smith McPhee character accomplishes in that film, you know, and the the way it's staged, and you know, the deafness of it felt so Hitchcockian to me, but I certainly didn't think of anything, any specific example. So, so James, thank you. <laughs> uh, Noel, could you read this next one? Sure. Uh, Sarah writes, I greatly enjoyed your recent discussion of Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, one of my personal favorite films of the year. While I found the pairing with Deliverance interesting in regards to the different portrayals of toxic masculinity, I wondered if you had considered Ali Kazan's East of Eden as a possible alternative. 
I myself didn't make the connection between the two films until I read Anthony Lane's review of Dog in The New Yorker. Both feature brothers who are at odds with one another to varying degrees, and both make liberal use of biblical allusions, with Eden indebted to the story of Cain and Abel, while Dog quotes directly from the 22nd Psalm in its title. Both James Dean as Cal, Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil, are subversively undermining classic ideals of the Hollywood hero in their performances. And there's a woman who comes in between the brothers in both films, though it's a romantic wedge in Eden as opposed to a more domestic one in Dog. The comparison to Eden, I think, makes more sense in relation to Thomas Savage's novel. I'm not sure if anyone on the podcast has read it, but George is not as marginalized in the back half of the book as he is in the film, whereas attempts to ingratiate himself into Montana society contribute to Rose's deterioration in less obvious ways than Phil's open hostility. It's also clearer in the book that the Burbank boys come from a moneyed East Coast lifestyle that George seems more interested in recreating in the West than Phil is, and that his courtship of Rose is part of the larger plan. In hindsight, I think Campion made the right choice in shaping off those aspects for her film, though it does seem a shame that it means viewers are denied more screen time from Plemons. I bring this up because I'd never heard of Savage's novel before the announcement of Campion's film, and usually try to read source material before seeing a screen adaptation. Given both Deliverance and Eden also began life as literature, I am curious how you all feel about being familiar with the source text before seeing a film, especially with something like Dog that's relatively obscure. I know it helped me fill in some gaps, but I'm sure I would have enjoyed Campion's film regardless. Do you feel it adds or detracts from the film experience, and would you consider reading Savage's book now that you know the whole plot? Uh, one thing that's very helpful uh, with regards to Power of the Dog and also uh, The Lost Daughter, another Netflix film, is that Netflix at the end of the year for its awards consideration purposes actually sends the novels to critics. So um, I don't know about you guys, but I have my own copy of The Power of the Dog. I do. Uh, and my own copy Mine of The about Lost Daughter. an inch away from my left hand right now. <laughs> I was not familiar with the book before I saw the movie, and I did not read the book before I saw the movie, and I have not read the book now. That said, I have uh, you know taken the advantage of having the book at hand to kind of flip through it and kind of see you know what the things I remember most strongly from the film, which ones are in the book and which ones aren't. Generally speaking, I'm not somebody who feels like you need to read the book before um, you see the movie. I would actually rather kind of experience the movie as its own thing. Uh, you know, if if once the movie is announced, I'd rather just see the movie. Uh, then read the book. If I happen to have read the book, then that's fine. But uh, for the most part, that's not something I feel like I need to do. But I do like to go back and, and, and look at the book after seeing the movie. I do find it interesting to see, you know, what choices were made. And that's true of The Lost Daughter as well, where, where there's some interesting kind of like deviations from, from what's in the book that I found, you know, enlightening to kind of look through the book after, after I um, saw the movie and kind of figure out, you know, what, what, what was going on there. But what, what, what do you guys think? I mean, I have I, I am in the same boat where I had not read the book. I was glad that Netflix sent me the book. I am planning on reading the book uh, probably at some point over the the holiday break. As far as an East of Eden comparison goes, no, we we didn't. It did never come up uh, in comparison. And I think it's a really interesting comparison. And uh, I, I sort of wish we'd thought of it. But having not revisited uh, Deliverance because I wasn't going to be on that cast, I couldn't really uh, speak to to how they compare or whether East of Eden would have been a better pick. I can only tell you that there there was not a plan to do that, that that we then decided uh, Deliverance should should outweigh it. Mm -hmm. But as far as um, I mean, anybody who's uh, followed me since the AV Club days uh, knows that I'm 
like uncannily obsessed with book to film adaptations and uh, reading the book, reading the comic, reading the adaptation, seeing both versions of the movie, seeing the the TV show that spun off of the movie. Like sometimes I don't feel like I've experienced whatever it is until I've experienced all of the iterations of it. And at the same time, maybe kind of perversely, I, I'm in the same boat as Null. I, I think that the movie should stand on its own without needing things to be filled in from the book. I think if the, the movie leaves you with kind of bafflement about somebody's motivations in doing a particular thing, and it's because they did it in the book and there was a very internal explanation, but the movie doesn't find a way to bring that across, I think that's a flaw in the movie. It's not an adaptation problem. It's a did the story belong on the screen in the first place problem. So I tend to prefer to read the book after I've seen the movie to fill in those motivations uh, very often. Often books are just like wind up being more more distinctive um, than movies, you know, because movies are committee products. They're so often studio products that have to be that just have to go through a, a certain process of compromise for the sake of a, a much broader audience. And very often when I when I read the book afterwards, I find it a lot more distinctive and specific than the movie. So I, I don't generally want to do that process in reverse if I can help it, because I'm much more likely to be disappointed by a movie if I've read the book, whereas I'm much more likely to find a, a book enlightening after I've seen the movie. Yeah, I I, I get, agree broadly speaking with the two of you. I, I when I am interested, I'll usually read something after I've seen a film. The the only exception being books that Scorsese ends up adapting. Like I, I read <laughs> I read Silence like in college, <laughs> thinking he was going to make that movie, and it took him like over twenty years to do it. You know, and I've read Killers of the Flower Moon is is new one, etc. And I read The Age of Innocence, which was fascinating because that book is that adaptation is like it literally is almost word for word. It's so 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 close, and yet still a Scorsese film, which is which which is one of the things I really love about it. But it is I, I do find the process to be absolutely fascinating just to just to see the choices that get made by different filmmakers. You know, I mean, like, in fact, you know this this project that. This has been a project that uh, Keith and I have been working on our newsletter, The Reveal, where we've we've gone over all these adaptations of Macbeth, you know, and just again, like just seeing, you know, these the choices that are made in staging these scenes that are that are more or less the same from Shakespeare's play. It's just it's, uh, you know, it's really interesting, to, you know, what 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 gets emphasized, what what and how, you know, and how uh, things get staged and, and what filmmakers find important, where they put the where the emphasis lies and, you know, what they kind of minimize and maximize. I mean, that that's that's adaptation. That's how you do it. That's if it, when it's and when it's done well, you're making good, strong choices that may not be, you know, completely in line with the text. I mean, you know, I mean, my favorite of all the Macbeth adaptations is Throne of Blood, which is not, which is not an ad. You know, it just borrows none of Shakespeare's language. It just takes takes what it needs from the text, and and you know, Kurosawa does his own thing with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's my babbling answer. But <laughs> but I think I think ultimately is just a fascinating endeavor to compare the two and just just to see what choices you know good artists make. I don't necessarily go out seeking adaptations of failed movies or something less unless it's a failed movie version of a book that everybody thinks is amazing i mean from time to time you see a movie like uh, the winner's tale and you, <laughs> yeah. you just you think to yourself there must have been something there to begin with that made some kind of sense and then the bonfire of the vanities yeah, especially when it's a, a a very celebrated book when it's a, a famous book 
and you come to it first through a, a botched film adaptation or film adaptation where you just say, how could anybody have thought this was a good story? And it usually happens when Akiva Goldman is involved uh, somehow. <laughs> yeah. And then you just don't let hacks adapt your books. You got to go. You got to go read the book and see what was this meant to be before these people got their hands on it. (laughs) But yeah, it's always a fascinating process just because it's adapting a book. You just know uh, the idea is supposed to be that you're coming to something with name recognition and a built in fandom. But these days in particular, it feels like, no, you're just coming in to a, a minefield of like people with expectations if you do a very direct adaptation, people are going to ding your movie for being too literal and uh, and stiff and straightforward and dull in, in following the movie. If you deviate from the text, then the fans are going to be angry because they didn't get to see this or that or it wasn't the way they imagined it. Like no matter what you do, uh, people are going to yell at you. But maybe that's true just for people who make films in general. <laughs> that's true that is true we we do experience a lot of yelling over movies true we <laughs> sometimes even engage in it we always appreciate when our <laughs> listeners yell at us about their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to yell at us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want us to know that you're yelling uh, in the email you're gonna have to send it in all caps i'm afraid That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Guillermo del Toro's version of Nightmare Alley, which gets more colorful, both in the sense that it's in color instead of black and white, and also in that it underlines the characters with more passion and more detail. It also goes further into the darkness at almost every turn. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please, please keep your giant glass bottles of alcohol carefully labeled for everyone's safety and well-being. Well-being.